Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 47 of Canine's Talking Sense. I know at this time, everybody's going to be getting ready to get out, have some fun for the 4th of July weekend. For me, I am actually going to be in town back here in Las Vegas after doing some traveling. I just got back from doing a canine cognition seminar with Sarah Bruski over at Purina Farms in Missouri, and that was a lot of fun. It's been uh, really good to collaborate with Sarah, who comes from a totally different aspect in the dog community. Her background is a lot of sport, from frisbee to agility to now mondoring, and it was really fun to show everybody that cognition isn't just about detection. It's about understanding your dog and applying this information that you get from learning about your dog and how your dog makes decisions, how your dog's mind works. And that helps you become much better and more efficient at training, no matter what your training is. So that was a lot of fun to to work with people from all over the dog training map, we had, uh, like I said, mondeering people, agility people, search and rescue people, and um, of course, nose work and other detection disciplines. So uh, a lot of fun. My first time out there at Purina Farm, so definitely enjoyed it and look forward to hopefully getting back there sometime soon because Sarah and I have some collaboration ahead specifically with uh, canine cognition and the puppy cognition, which our new trainer here at Ford Canine, Natalie Morris, will be doing a lot of the puppy cognition. You're going to see lots of posts on my social media feed where, uh, like you have already probably, where we are currently raising right now, let's see, we have the four Springers that are exactly six months old now. That's Chip Rip, those two are my personal dogs, and then Pixel and Banner, both of those are going to become bed bug detection dogs. They were sold within a few weeks after us uh, getting those dogs in, but you've probably seen us do lots of videos uh, that we're sharing on social media that shows how we are raising and doing skill building as much as or as well as the environmental exposures and helping the dogs get better. Well, 
Now we've added little Quill, who is a working Cocker Spaniel, which is very similar to the Springer Spaniel, just a little bit smaller. We also now have Tegan. She's a year old. She's another working Cocker Spaniel. She's going to be doing bed bugs. Quill, at this point in time, is currently available. So if somebody is looking for a good working dog and you would like us to train this dog in a detection discipline for you, he's available. And then by the time this podcast airs, we will have little Logan with us. Logan is a Labrador retriever from Grassroots Canine in Maryland. Kelsey, many of you guys who follow her, is flying here and delivering Logan to us. We're going to spend a week together doing some training, so you'll be seeing all that on social media at the exact same time this podcast comes out. But Logan will now also begin our training uh, from selection to detection, the puppy raising process, where we are going to be Again, just like the Springers, showcasing, raising, and training of these dogs to become detection dogs. So Quill and Logan are two dogs that are open and available for those who are looking for their next dog and would like us to train it. And last is in a week right after here, after the 4th of July weekend, we will be picking up number three, which will be another Springer puppy who will be nine weeks old. His name is going to be Amo. Amo is going to be, again, wide open to become a detection dog for whoever wants to get a detection dog from us. And so you're going to see these three dogs, Quill. You're going to see Logan and Amo being prepped and ready, like you've seen Chip, Rip, Pixel, and Banner. But now the Pixel, Banner, and Tegan will become bed bug detection dogs. Chip is going to become an electronics detection dog. And Rip will become human remains. So stay tuned for all those great videos watching us now take it to the next stage with those dogs that are six months old and begin odor association uh, in that process. So besides the puppies, we've been doing a lot of trainer classes. Uh, those that are looking to find a career in canine detection we have our canine detection trainer classes that have been going on, but had a lot of fun doing that. We have our immersive course where you come out here and go through different levels of training and immersion with the dogs that we have here, watching what we do. So um, we're getting a little break right now because, of course, in Vegas, it's only like 115 every day. So go to the Ford Canine website. Uh, you're going to see some dates of the future ones coming up in the fall. And of course, with me traveling around, the fall is going to be nuts. I'm going to be going everywhere. I am all over the place, pretty much from August all the way through December. Stay tuned. I'm probably going to be in an area near you. It's going to be quite the road trips along with some flying because I can't be everywhere all by driving. So those of you that follow the website, you go check out the website. A lot of the uh, dates and the classes and the seminars that I'll be at will all be posted on there and are already on there. We are booking out 2022, so if you are interested in having myself and Natalie come out, or Natalie come out, depending on the uh, seminar, contact us, info at FordK9.com. It's just F-O-R-D-K number nine dot com. Um, let us know what seminar you might be interested in, 
And we'll be heading out there just a recap of some of the seminars that we have. It's the canine cognition one, which is obviously what I've been talking about recently. We also have the puppy cognition one. We have odor pays seminar. This is that seminar where we focus on how to teach that initial odor and how to do it where it's very clear using delayed conditioning. Uh, We have the handler trap seminar where... Of course, I focus on the weakest link in detection dogs, which is always us, the human side of it. I focus heavily on uh, exercises where I identify one of the things that you're doing or many of the things that you're doing, depending on on the uh, situation. And then we do exercises that helps eliminate or and or reduce those things that we do or those what I call handler traps we fall into. So the handler trap is another seminar. And then those are probably our top three. And then I have some other ones that are more specific. It's uh, like our odor chemistry classes. I say odor chemistry, but it's, it's more of the, I call it the science of odor classes. It's just understanding odor, how to store it, how to handle it properly. Our new, soon to come out in 2022, which will be the canine cognition instructor courses. That I'm not going to go too much into detail yet, just because we got to put it together and, and put it out there. But there's your teaser. That's coming out, the canine cognition instructor course. So I want to go into a topic real quick before we start this episode, which is most recently, I made a post on social media called Nose Calluses. And what that basically means is like anything that we do, we put a lot of effort into or let's say working out or, or putting ourselves through heavier or stronger work, things that are difficult, we build calluses. Well, with our dogs, we need to do the same thing. We need to push ourselves and push ourselves and sometimes the dogs out of the typical comfort zone. And that's hard to do sometimes. You know, a lot of us don't want to be uncomfortable. But I can tell you, pushing yourself, getting yourself out of that easy, comfortable rut, the same similar type of hides, whether it's searching your common search venues that you use frequently, putting out two to three hides. Yeah, you might range them in some type of challenge, but it's really not all that challenging. And you're not willing many cases to walk away and go, you know what, that didn't work, but we're not going to turn around and make it so easy. The dog gets an easy win out of it. Sometimes that failure, that situation where the dog didn't find it, or maybe we, of course, as the handler failed to do something properly, we need to go through that and feel that. So that way we understand that because many times We go through that failure on a real deployment with our dogs or at a trial when you're competing in nose work. That's when all of a sudden you experience a failure and then you start doing what I call chasing symptoms. You start going around going, oh, it's the container search or, oh, it's a vehicle search. You know, it's my my dog gets distracted by these other things that are going on. Well, my thing is you need to make and push your training to match what you do for real, whether it be a competition or whether it be a real deployment, whatever it is, your training should start reaching that level that the two almost become hard to tell the difference for the dog. Now, of course, there are certain circumstances that may, you know, reduce our ability to make that happen, but I challenge you. I challenge you as a handler and a trainer to find ways to make yourself better. We have to be accountable 
as the canine handler or trainer, which means what are you doing to better your dog and to better yourself? What are you doing besides just showing up to training, running your dog on odor, and then going home? You need to find ways. Be creative. Think outside the box. Don't be scared for a training session to fail. I can promise you it's not going to ruin your dog. But you have to get yourself out of the rut. You have to push yourself in uncomfortable situations because later on, when you face those uncomfortable situations that you weren't planning on, you won't feel as uncomfortable because you've been there before. You know what it's like. You can embrace it. You know, there's a term that's used quite frequently in, you know, special forces, military, law enforcement. It says embrace the suck. Well, you know what? Embrace that feeling so that way it's not so surprising or shocking to you. You want to go out there and push yourself in that training to see where your gaps are at, see where there's some things to work on, which means sometimes that session doesn't work out. So we have to be willing to do that and we have to be willing to push ourselves. It's not easy. And believe me, when you become apropomorphic and you start putting your feelings on the dog, you're not helping anything. That dog doesn't feel the same way about missing something like you do or not finding something as much as you did. When you find out that, oh, the the odor was right over there, then you're like, well, can I go over there and run that? No, you missed it. Sorry. You get to do it again later on or a different day. The dog doesn't always need to win. Sometimes not having that win might help some dogs work harder. Even those dogs who may not be as motivated, guess what? We can do things that help that motivation, which also means a loss. So don't be afraid to push yourself there will be a series of things that are going to be coming out through the Ford K9 website, which is currently being redesigned right now, called Detection Motivation. I'm going to be putting out a monthly newsletter where myself and the trainer, uh, our trainer Natalie, will be putting out information each month that will cover different things in that detection motivation realm. It'll be various things that we discuss regarding how you are setting up training. What is your goal and objective this month in training? We might even propose an idea to you, a plan. So stay tuned for that. This little speech there was, I hope, to motivate you guys as trainers and handlers to be creative, push yourself, allow yourself and your dog to experience a failure so you know what it looks like, you know what it feels like, and when you go through something like that again, because you will, don't worry, you will go through it again. But this time, it won't be as difficult. This time, it won't be as hard to deal with because you've put yourself through that before and you know what that feeling is like. You know, I have a lot of handlers that say they don't want to pay in the real world when they're working their dog on a, on a real search. My question is, why the hell not? Why wouldn't you pay your dog? Well, I don't know what's there. I don't know what else could be there. If you have that question, my question to you is why the hell are you out there doing it for real if you don't trust when your dog is telling you something? I know all dogs aren't perfect. I know you guys aren't all perfect. Nobody's perfect and no dog is perfect. And guess what? What if for some reason on that one search, you happen to pay on something that the dog wasn't indicating on correctly? It's not the end of the world. But if you keep doing that and you keep making your reality look different than training, 
you are setting yourself up for problems and for failure with you and your dog. And you start coming to people like me asking me, well, my dog does this on real searches, but on training it does like that. Well, that's your fault. You failed to prepare your dog. You failed to prepare yourself. So if it's Christmas morning when you're doing training and it's a party all the time, but in reality, your dog doesn't get much, how much fun do you think your dog is going to have fun on real searches? And don't think for one second your dog doesn't know the difference between a real search and a training search. It does. So keep making those reality searches boring. Keep making those reality searches with little to no payoff and see how far that gets you and see how many problems that start stemming from the lack of reinforcement it gets in these conditions. And again, if you trust your dog or you want the public or the legal system or whoever to trust your dog on real searches, you better trust your dog yourself. So if your dog indicates there better be a reason and you should know that because your training has pushed you and made you ready for reality. So that's my soapbox for this episode. I hope those words help motivate you and push you because our whole premise moving forward is detection motivation. And it's going to mean some Cameron tough love. It's going to mean I'm going to call out stuff. I'm not always right. But what I know is we have to be better. We can't just coddle all of these dogs and handlers and go, oh, it's great. Just have a win and clap and yay. No, we have to push ourselves. So take that into consideration. Make some monthly objectives after this podcast of what you want to push you and your dog to go do. Write out a plan. That's the first thing you have to do is write out what you want to do. Put those goals down on paper and then start making a plan to get it done. So stay tuned for our detection motivation series coming up. Without any further ado, I'm going to kick this over to the episode. This is a really good one. This is a lot of this episode's called The Details of Detection. And this guest has a plethora of knowledge. She has done amazing research, amazing work, and has really good experience. So with that said, on to the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this new episode of Canines Talking Sense. On this episode, we're going to go into a little bit more of research, learning, and things like that. So I want to introduce my next guest, Dr. Astrid Concha. Dr. Concha, welcome to the show, and thank you for your time for coming on here. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, you you know, I've been more involved now over the past number of years getting into more of the research and development side of things. I know that's a significant area for you, but I want to start off with, you know, a little, tell us a little bit about you and how you got to where you're at today. All right. So I am a veterinarian. I'm from Chile, actually. And I have been working in a small animal behavior for well, almost 20 years now. And so after uh, the vet school, I got my master's degree in animal behavior and welfare from the University Autonoma of Barcelona in Spain. But when I started to work with dogs with behavior problems, actually, I realized that I didn't want to be just the behavior of vets that only prescribes medication or gives the owner uh, owner's behavior modification protocols, you know. So mm-hmm. I want to really be involved in the treatment. So actually I started to train dogs. 
And then I get so fascinated with the, all the learning, uh, how to do it. And I'm a qualified assistant dog trainer for people with physical disabilities. I'm also qualified detection dog trainer for explosive and narcotics. And I'm not sure if you know in the States forensic odorology. So it's a technique that actually um, is used trained dogs to identify human scent in a lineup. Yeah. To mm-hmm. Yes. So, so establish that an individual had been, for instance, at the, the scenes of a crime. So it's quite... They use it a lot in Holland and another part of Europe and also in Argentina in South America. So, and actually I use that technique well, with a completely different subject that I can tell you later on about that. That was sure. very, very interesting. So I started to get more involved with working dogs more than pet dogs. And finally, around 10 years ago, I changed a little bit my professional path and I did my PhD. So I did my PhD at the University of Lincoln in the UK. My PhD focused on olfaction in dogs. I looked at mainly sniffing behavior. And after my PhD, I worked for medical detection dogs in the UK um, as a project coordinator and training supervisor for a cancer detection project. That is an amazing field. I was really, really amazed to work in there and I love that field. Well, actually for medical reason, I had to to leave. So I uh-huh. left um, working in there. But now, finally, I'm currently working as a research associate for the Army Research Office. So we are doing a project looking at genetics, behavior, cognition, and military working dogs at Lackland Air Force Base. Um, this project is in conjunction with Texas Tech University, so mm-hmm. I work closely to Nathan Hall, and also uh, with North, Car- North Carolina State University with Dr. Matthew Green. So it's a kind of a big project with different views. So yeah, and actually this project, I'm not sure if I can disclose much information about sure. what we're doing, but what i'm interested in actually uh, looking at uh, is mainly the levels of impulsivity affective state arousal actually how that affects performance and the dog that actually pass or get qualified and those one that they don't make it in this specific specific program yeah i have done a little bit of everything related with dogs but just i i love this field and, it, and what you bring up is obviously what I got more known for after working with Dr. Brian Hare on the cognition part and, you know, the stuff I got to do with the Navy SEAL program, you know, applying the uh, testing protocols that were, you know, we kind of whittled them, whittled them down to a very specific group of tests. It was six overall. So it's three inference right. and three memory. And what it did for us was... The, how it all started was I initially wanted to, you know, look at things to help avoid the typical inference dogs made towards the handlers to solve a odor or detection problem. And it turned into how to select better dogs. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. the unique aspect for me was, you know, in short results were we had a 30% or so increase of dogs that made it from, let's say, selection at purchase to deployment. 
So we had a 30% increase there. And it was, wasn't quite 30. It was like just a little under. I'm just rounding it up. And then we had the byproduct of that was pretty much an exact 30% reduction in training time. Because oh, that's good. We, yeah, yeah, we weren't spinning our wheels as much as we used to when we would, you know, we're all dog trainers, so we would see dogs exhibit, you know, struggles in training, and then we would try to do things to help them through it or set up training that would allow them to learn. And after we had done a few dogs, and one in particular, I remember that he was a kind, of, he was good because as a trainer, you'd wanted him, you would see progress. But every time he saw something new, it was starting all over again. And what was unique is during the cognitive test, during inference, he would get it right sometimes and then still would pick the wrong choice. And then he, he would never really take the information and learn from it. It was always like almost starting over again. And his memory scores were also lower. So when I looked back at watching those videos and it matched up to the struggles that we had, that was one of those points that we learned when we were testing is, okay, if I have a dog who was stronger in inference, they were more likely to problem solve and you know work their way through something. Um, the dogs with higher memory were fine, but just we knew as trainers, we needed to make adjustments to training more frequently so they weren't apt to use memory before yeah. using their nose kind of thing. So uh, it's, it's cool to see that you guys are doing, obviously, similar type work with other stuff going on. But the, the unique thing is the results are the same. And that was the, the funny part, too, was Canine Companions for Independence were doing the exact same tests that we were doing. But what they looked for were the exact opposite results of the tests that we wanted. So, for example, we do one where we let the dog see us place their toy or food underneath one bucket, but we point to the opposite one. We point to the incorrect one. And do they go to the one that has the food or toy and ignore my gestural communication? Well, in the CCI dogs, they wanted the dogs to go to the gestural communication and ignore, in that case, to them, distractor or something of higher value, but to follow the human. So, you know, two total end result different, but they saw very similar percentages in results. So, I'm, I'm, you know, it sounds fun like you guys are doing probably similar in nature kind of things looking at, because as I also learned was the impulse control was very important because the dogs, my joke is, you know, these dogs can look really good on typical normal selection tests. They have all the motivation and drives in the world and it's awesome to watch that intensity. But it also shows most times that those types of dogs are also mentally inflexible and they are not apt to try something different. They'll just keep doing the same thing over again. And that's that definition of insanity. So does that kind of mirror some of the things that you guys see and, and go through? Well, actually, one of the things that, uh, like you mentioned, that I'm really interested in and we are looking at this dog is a level of impulsivity. Because as you know, well, impulsivity is a complex trait which is, uh, can divide it in different aspects, for instance, uh, related to inhibitory control, as you said, and, and also what is impulsive in choice, like to make a decision, mm -hmm. and also impulsive in action, like when you want to stop something that has already started. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the, the, some of the research that have been done in dogs related to impulsivity, we have proved that 
uh, working lines, for instance, of border collies and Labradors are more impulsive, like the pet dogs, you know, yeah. which is, yeah, that is the reason why you work with them. We don't have data, for instance, in Belgium Malinois, with actually, I believe, that really, really impulsive dogs because we have been selected in the way that it works. Also, we know, based on doctor study, that actually impulsivity is stable over the time. So it's similar probably to people. So those individuals, like dogs that are really impulsive, they're going to be like that until they die. Mm -hmm. So And that becomes very important then that you have to teach the dog inhibitory control. So the dog is able to perform a task, like you said, and have this uh, flexibility to adjust himself to the, I don't know, the, the thing that is facing, yes. uh, changing the environment, change the handler, make a, a quick decision, which might be a tiny little bit of impulsive, but the right one. So that is why we want to have a look, okay, which level of impulsivity actually is good enough so the dog can still perform well and have this inhibitory control, or the doctor is really impulsive and just, you know, that don't think anymore. Mm -hmm. So they just react and, and they do what they want to do. But, but also what I think I want to clarify, but to me, so this is my perception, maybe I'm wrong, but there is, a, um, I think um, some people, some trainers think that when you talk about self-control, it's a dog that actually performs a task when you say. For instance, if you say sit, the dog sat and stay there until you do, I don't know, give the next cue and so on. But to me, they needed to, I mean, the self-control, which is part of the inhibitory control, is when you give to the dog the option to make the right decision, okay? So for instance, same dogs in here, like Lan, I don't know, or any dog with really high level of motivation for a toy, and you place a toy in front of the dog, mm -hmm. okay? So the dog is going to get, it, just want to get it, and some of the dog is going to wait a little bit longer, like, okay, what's going on here? You're going to tell me what to do so I can earn this, this toy. But yeah, but when you say to the dog, you present, for instance, the toy, and you say, sit, you change already to so the dog in somehow have understand that okay if I sat I get this or if I sit I get this but what happened when you don't say anything mm -hmm. is the dog able to control himself without telling what to do that makes yeah. sense yeah absolutely no and it's and it's funny you bringing this up because right now I'm in the middle of uh, raising these uh, Springer puppies that I have. And, I love Springer Spaniel. I yeah, really like them. Yeah, it, it is, and it's, and as you already know, then dealing with Springers is the impulse control isn't always the easiest thing for them either. So <laughs> since I have these little puppies, I say they're they're now uh, almost five months old. I, I knew to start early and start building that impulse control at this stage, which is now what I do when I try to. Because you know the the you know this year's podcast theme, I would say that I've been doing has been how we need to get better as a industry here in the states to develop our young dogs to become working dogs. You know we have good genetics here, like I always say, and we have good trainers here. 
there's just a process of raising young dogs where we just don't have the resources and we haven't created systems in place to really do it. But now I'm seeing a lot more, you know, law enforcement's changing. There's a lot of guys and gals getting out of law enforcement much earlier than they used to. But some have really good backgrounds in in working dogs. So one of the things I'm trying to help promote is show some people, hey, you know, use that experience that you have as a dog person. You know what the end result should look like and you have good training experience. Hey, start helping out and raising these young dogs, these pups from breeders who have good genetics, but they don't have enough people to help raise them without, you know, having a bunch of dogs around, you know? So one of the things that I, you know, first things I work on is developing, you know, searching and hunting technique and then that impulse control part, you know, how to like, just like you said, have the ability to maintain focus with duration, A lot of times, you know, just because we want our dogs to get a quick win, we reinforce pretty quickly, and we do that so often that the dog's little clock in its head isn't more than a few seconds for impulse, for that control. And when I want it for 20 or 30 seconds or more, depending on later on as we start developing training, I've done so many reps and built that pattern of short duration that it's so much harder to get that longer. So I tried developing the longer one earlier on. So that way the dog knows it will happen. You know, the reinforcer will happen. All I have to do is just maintain myself and my, you know, impulse control and then I'll get the reinforcer. So that's something that's kind of newer. I've seen, you know, when I show some of the different breeders or, or raisers of dogs that you have to do this early on because if you go so many months or of training time, you've done a lot of quick reinforcement for what I would say, you know, 10 seconds or under impulse control is you've built that clock in and it's a lot harder to extend it out without some type of extinction burst, you know, the dog, you know, exhibiting some kind of uh, tapping the, you know, or moving or barking or whatever it is to, to kind of, you know, let out that burst. So anyway, how is that obviously some of the same things that you see or you've seen in the different types of detection programs, that little bit of having dogs struggling with maintaining position at whatever it is, but maintaining there for a, a duration longer than let's say the typical five, 10 seconds. Uh, do you mean during the search? Yeah, they they search and then they find what they look for. Have you seen it, you know, because you've done some different disciplines now. Have you seen a like a similar theme despite the detection discipline where the dogs, because of the training or that rapid reinforcement, they struggle to maintain that whatever the position of alert is longer than 10 seconds. It's not like they, it's, it's very difficult to go break that time barrier. Yeah, exactly. So there are several things involved in, in that. Like you said, depending on which type of detection dog you are using, so obviously you select a dog according to that. Because for instance, uh, if you worked uh, in a medical detection field where the dog more than detect actually have to discriminate, mm-hmm. you know? So it's a dog that you want to work a little bit faster, but actually spend enough time in each sample because you need to discriminate something like we we don't know what it is, mm-hmm. even you know what I mean in cancer detection or now with the COVID dogs and so on. So when it comes to um, what influence the dog's behavior of, of be focused on, on the trainer response, 
it could be like you said, it's a dog that has been uh, or expecting, the expectation is having a reward uh, delivered really quickly in time, really fast, like two seconds, mm-hmm. three seconds. So the dog actually starts, you can see the dog is actually start to perform another different behaviors, like looking back, you know, like what's going on here? So should yeah. be close to the source. What do you want me to do? Why I don't have the, the, the toy or, or the, the food? And sometimes also when you click and you put, you could say like within the train alert, all those behaviors, then you have a dog that is not able to focus because it's like, okay, I should focus first and then I should do, I don't know, look back. And then if I move around and all that, after all that, I got my reward. So become part of the train alert response. Uh-huh. That is one thing. So it's the handler timing and also the way that you build up duration. But if we come in uh, moving forward and, and think about impulsivity. So in those dogs are really impulsive. So for them, it's really difficult to control themselves. You try you, the trainer with a, a self-control and all the exercise and the dog at some point is going to get, try to get the toy anyway in a short period of time mm-hmm. and because it's really hard for them. And the problem with those dogs is because they have expectation to get the reward really quickly. Also, I'm not able, like because my Genetics, behavior traits, like whatever you want to call it, it doesn't allow me to wait for more, for much longer time. Mm-hmm. So then, what happened with this dog? They get frustrated really easily. Okay, yep. and then well, we're talking now about emotions. So actually, the dog is expected to get a reward. I don't get it in the time that I want it. I get frustrated. So you have dog that okay. I give up, I move away. Dog that sometimes bark at the source, scratch, even if it's a dog that shouldn't scratch. So there, yeah, you got other, other behaviors. Uh, some dogs you can see that turns back to the handle and start to snap at, at the person because like, come on, dude, I want yeah. my toy now. I can't yeah. no wait. So actually, it's like you say, depending on the dog you have in front of you is the way that you should adjust your training. Yes, absolutely. So, definitely. So, and then coming back to the, the, the focus on search, yeah, like, I mean, you can train that and just train the dog to focus in, in a specific point so to respond really quickly. For instance, if you move the conch and you just hold the conch in front of the dog, the dog mm-hmm. should, should sit, for instance. Yeah. You can train that in a puppy just as part of the play when mm-hmm. you, I don't know, you call it um, here in the state, like a flirt pole. Yes, it's like it's the a flirt po- yeah, okay. yep. Exactly. So you move and the dog get like this, pray and go around and around. And when you stop, if the dog grab it, you take it out mm-hmm. without telling anything or put it up so the dog cannot reach it. Until, yeah. for instance, the dog realizes, okay, if I wait or if I say it, then I have it. And then they move and start again and I can catch it. So... You train the dog to respond like without thinking. It's like almost like a classical conditioning. Yep. So if I want this, I respond this without like all the decision making or all the expectation and all the stuff. And that is really good to do with puppies. For sure. It's easier yeah, than the, an adult dog that they have a lot of different expectation, a lot of different, different experience that you yeah, might need to modify a little bit in, in a different way. 
Yeah, because of those habits they've gotten from other yeah. things or other, you said, other experiences. So this brings another question, which is, you know, as you probably already know, somewhat depending on the detection dog circles, controversial. But what is your opinion? Because you and I have never talked about this. We don't even know each other. How important or how do you view using an audible marker, you know, so whether it be a clicker, whistle, word, whatever, versus the other aspect of the toy or food item has to appear or be brought to the odor location. What do you see from your experience and your training? What's valuable in either or? What do you like or don't like about either or? Okay, so... um to me, when you train detection dog, it's very, very important to train separately the alert mm-hmm. response. So you need to train the dog, like I mean, to know how to respond in the way that you want, did scratch, whatever, bark. So they can tell you when they find the, the scent that you want to do. So to me, that is more important because when the dog knows how to respond, like I just told you before, it's just a classical conditioning. Like, okay, yep. I got this smell. Oh, I saw. I got this smell. Oh, I saw. Mm-hmm. And so if you ask me, if you use a clicker, a world, or, or don't use anything, I think sometimes, depending on the dog, it's better to use a marker. Yeah. Even if it's a boys or, or, or a clicker, I don't mind. Because yeah, I yeah. tell the dog, like, okay, you did right. So now wait there for the toy or the food to come. Okay? Mm-hmm. So it's like you say, some people, they click and reward on source, like, I mean, close to the dog. Yeah, other people just click, for instance, or use a whistle, and the dog had to leave the position and get next to the handler to mm-hmm. get the reward. If you use a market... To me, it doesn't make any difference, actually, if the dog leaves the place yeah. or wait, depending on what you want to train, depending on what you want the dog to do it. For instance, when I was working in medical detection dogs, yes, we use the clicker as a release. So the dog finds the sample that we want to, the dog performs the train as a response, then the hand a click, and the dog leaves the carousel and gets yep. to get the toy. But then it's the same. Even if the dog release after the click or waiting there after the click, when the dog knows what they have to do, it's really clear what he had to do or she has to do, yeah, you can have a good dog. Yeah. The problem to me is when you, yeah, unfortunately you have a bad timing, so you have all this that you call it superstitious behavior, uh-huh. or sometimes some people that actually when the dog starts to learn the, the smell or the scent, you introduce the sit at the same time. So it's like the dog is yes. like, okay, what do you want me to focus? Do you want me to focus on the, on the smell or do you want me to focus on I need to sit? But I don't know what you want me to do then. Yep. So that training takes longer. It's that typical box system, yeah, where they go yeah. up and they make the dog sit, but then try to pop the reward out of there. But, uh, oh, by the way, there's also re- – the target odor is also there. So it's exactly. like rewards there, odors there, and the dog's yeah. being told to sit. There's so many things going on. It takes way longer to get through that versus, like you said, I'm going to teach what I want, how I want you to tell me in its own separate game. I'm going to teach you what to look for in hunting games. And then we put them together at some point, whenever whatever's right for the dog. And when you find it, this, this is what you do when you find it. 
And the other aspect is, as you've probably seen, where the handler feels they don't use any type of marker. They just throw the toy over the dog's head or they walk up with a piece of food and and they feed where the odor's at. But like I, the one of the things I try to bring up to them is like, does your dog even care now? At that, I mean, when you walk up with food, they don't even care that they're at the odor anymore. They're, all they care about is you're coming up with the food. It doesn't feeding where you're at doesn't really make a difference anymore. You know, the the odor was found. The dog did what you wanted to do, but then you coming up to deliver the food there to re, to eat from you, the value of that is minimal at best. Well, I think, do you mean without using a marker, without telling the dog that you're... No marker, yeah. there's no to marker me, you know, at all. What, yeah. I, I can see in, in that picture the problem that you can have in the field. Because when you have, you train the dog, it's the same, probably the same area or, or kind of the same person or no one around or maybe two or, or another three trainers. But when you go in the field, mm-hmm. for instance, a dog, like you said, that had been trained like that and is working in, in, I don't know, an airport. So mm-hmm. if I don't, don't tell the dog that I use a market, obviously the dog is going to start to learn which thing predict that the reward is coming. So like you yep. say, okay, so if my dog handler or dog trainer is moving towards me, I'm going to have my reward. What happens is another person, the dog is going to get distracted. Doing the same, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Approaching to the dog. So you have to work actually uh, during the training that the dog have to avoid that, turn around or move away if another person walk around the dog. So it's much, a lot of work, you know? So it's the same. If it, I just threw the toy, what happened if, I don't know, my dog is indicated and someone threw something or something fell next to the dog, the dog is going to get distracted. So again, then sure. you have to train the dog that it's only this type of toy or it's only when it's delivery in front of you and I need to throw a lot of different stuff so you don't get distracted. It's not more work, you know what I mean? More training instead of just saying yeah. yes or click or a whistle. And click, yeah. Okay, the communication yep. is really clear. And that is something, yes. sorry, that but, is something that is really important. That the communication absolutely. is really clear. Because one we have seen in and um, my current project is, for instance, dogs that have more uh, negative affective state, which means dogs are a little bit more sensitive to punishment mm-hmm. or to punish and get a little bit more fearful, uh, more anxious. They perform more false indication. Okay. Yes. Yes. So if you have a dog that actually, because if his behavior trait is more sensitive, so, and you don't give him more information, which is relevant for me, I get more stress. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, and then the communication might not be good. Then the dog is not going to perform well because actually it's not sure. And also dogs that are more um, in a negative affective state, they actually perceive situations that they are ambiguous. So they don't know much. Uh, less what is going to happen in a negative way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like people, you know, that like the pessimism people that is oh, no, this is not going to work. Uh, no, I don't think so. So th- this type of dogs actually seems to be similar to humans. It's like, okay, I don't know what to do in here, but probably something bad is going to happen. So for this type of dog, of course, a mark is necessarily 
because you build up the, the, the dog will get more confident. Oh, no, I know. I, I have really clear what I need to do. Mm-hmm. So we no. go back again. It's really dependent of the dog what you want. It's not like, uh, uh, or, I mean, the dog that you have in front is how you need to adjust the training for that dog. Absolutely. No, that's, and that's one of the biggest things that I preach because it's what I learned after working with Dr. Hare with the cognition, because as I learned by doing these cognitive tests, I got to see, okay, like he talks about, we look at dogs by their breed, by basically the exterior part. And we make assumptions because of that, that paint job, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what what it looks like from the outside. And when you do cognitive testing, you find out so much more about the dog and it's not so much about the breed that it is because your training will adapt or it should adapt to that dog in front of you based on the information you get about its uniqueness, its particulars about it. You know, is it like us? Is it right side or left side dominant? You know, you can use that to your advantage in your training and how to solve and or how to allow the dog to search a way that it, it wants to do it versus the way I want it to do it. There's, you know, like you said, just the uniqueness. And like I learned from Nathan Hall, the olfactory differences in dogs. You know, there was the dogs that are detecting the parts per trillions. Yep. And then there's the dogs that are at the parts per millions. And they can be the same breed. You know, yeah, we don't have, it's not, it's just because it's a Belgian Malinois or a Labrador or a Pointer, it's always going to do or be really apt to do this. There are some characteristics that will be similar, but you really got to know that dog in front of you to be able to, like we just been talking about, how to communicate effectively, allowing it to, when we're training, learn efficiently so we're not wasting a bunch of time or adding a bunch of steps or making so much more work for ourselves. I just want to take a quick second and welcome to our show, one of the new sponsors here at Canines Talking Sense. It's an application for your phone called Search Dog Timer or SDT. You can find Search Dog Timer currently on the Apple App Store. It's not yet out on Google, but if you have an iPhone, you're good to go. What this app does, it allows you to take a picture of your search area. And in that search area, you can place up to four icons or four markers where your odor is at and what the odor is. And as your dog searches, you can just tap the button on your screen when the dog makes a find. And it gives you a timestamp of when the dog has located that target odor. What's unique about this is it gives you information on search duration. How long did it take your dog to go from beginning its search to making the first find, uh, going from that find to the next find, and it lays it out nicely on a photo. And when you've completed your search and you hit complete, it becomes a photo in your photo reel where it shows you where uh, your, your hides are at and when your dog actually found those specific hides. So it's a fun little app to kind of use and to document your search duration and search times. And again, you can find this on the Apple App Store called Search Dog Timer SDT. And we hope you like it. I know the developer of this app would love your guys' feedback, input, 
Uh, as with any app, they're always able to update, uh, make changes, uh, you know, do things that we're looking for as end users. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it. Go check out the Search Dog Timer app on the Apple App Store. Canine's Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each, or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordk9.com slash webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford K9 now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, Go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordk9.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. Are you looking for quality detection dog training equipment? We have a variety of items on our website at FordK9.com. We have the glass jars. We have the odor shaker cans. We have magnetic boxes to hold your odors in. We also are a vendor for the portable scent wheel that's made by Pat Nolan at tacticaldirectionalcanine.com. This portable scent wheel is made of stainless steel and has six arms and folds up to where you can carry it in a bag and take it with you virtually anywhere. There isn't a device out there like that, especially when it comes to wheels that is that portable and that easy to use. So you can order that wheel from us or go visit Pat Nolan's website, tacticaldirectionalk9.com, or like I said, go to fordk9.com, go to our online store, and look at any of the variety of detection-related equipment items that we offer for sale. Again, we offer this for any of our students that come here, but you don't have to be a student in order to get these items. Just go to our website, check it out, fordk9.com. One of the things I've been, you know, talking about some of the pitfalls of, of training, uh, like a training day with multiple dogs, is having multiple dogs run the same training problem, because the first dog is the only dog who got a clear picture of the search space with potentially finding the odor or there's no odor present, whatever way it's set up, but 
what would you say from somebody with the background in olfaction, what are the problems with running searches where multiple dogs run the same hides? What are things that start to develop or what are the things that dogs will start to pick up on because of multiple dogs running the same search area? Yeah, so uh, coming back a little bit to what you were talking about, uh, thresholds. And so uh, part of my PhD, we actually looked at olfactory detection threshold to uh, amylacetate. Okay. And we have dogs from the same litter. So uh, there was a female and then a male. And the difference on olfactory threshold was amazing. I mean, for instance, one dog was, I don't know, to say something like, one part per million and another dog was one part per trillion and dogs that were raised mm-hmm. in the same way you know so yeah so uh, there is a very very individual variability regardless that you're doing the same work with all the dogs because at that time when we did a study in the in detection the olfactory detection threshold we did the same exactly the same for the 10 dogs and all the 10 dogs that mm-hmm. were completely different and also actually one of the best dogs uh, was a working cocker, and um, I think he was, um, I, I can't remember, 11 years old. So, yeah. Oh, wow. So, like, okay, so when actually this declined, but that dog has experience in detecting all the stuff. So, actually, oh, then maybe there's a reason why the dog actually was better than a younger dog. So, but anyway, so coming back to what you say, yes, the, the, the thing with the ability of the dog to detect is not just a breed, it's an individual as well, mm-hmm. and the way that you train uh, the dog. But like you said, what happened when you train a dog, run the first one, and then run the second one and the third one in the same mm-hmm. uh, context or the same search area? So, First of all, you obviously have to take into consideration all the change that are going to happen in the scent itself because of the time, because how they actually, the, the scent is spread into the room, because it's mm-hmm. time as well. It's time, it's temperature, it's a lot of things. So that is something that you need to control. Then you run the first one, okay, find it or not find it, because it could be any, then the second one and the third one. If you run the dog in the same order every time, mm. in different days, sometimes we don't realize. Do you want to all the time do the worst dog first or the best one first uh, or the handler mm-hmm. that got early? I don't know. And you don't realize yeah. that you're actually doing the same order. And what's the problem with that? Obviously, some dogs start, start to get into the scent picture, if you want to call it like that, or they're yep. contaminated or, or uh, destructors or whatever. Is for instance, like you said, saliva that has been placed in there. Even the dog smell on the floor. Mm-hmm. Or actually, even if you use the same search area, but the person changed the descent um, from one corner to another corner without touching anything. Dogs are not stupid. So they follow your trade. Like I said, you need to get, uh, take into consideration how this descent is going to change in that day of training or during the week. Like I mean, like I said before, time, temperature, and so on. 
the order that you're running the dog, okay, and actually when you move also the, the target, oh, please, touch something else, move around. And, yeah. and mainly it's like, for instance, in this dog, when you work and laugh, like if the dogs are searching a lineup or the dogs are searching a carousel, Oh my God, yes. I saw some dogs that actually follow the trace of the trainer when they change the sample, not the sample itself. Or some dogs mm-hmm. lick a little bit the sample or the place, okay? Yes. I follow that then. It's not about the scent anymore. It's trying to pick up, okay, how I can make it easier to get my reward? <laughs> it's not about the scent anymore. Yeah. So you need to, ta- yeah, to, to take into consideration several stuff. What would you say is probably the worst, uh, or I won't say the worst, but what is the strongest component of all those other odors? Would it be saliva? Would it be just the dog smell? Uh, have you seen any consistencies in things that, you know, for for me, what I'll say, what I've seen is saliva is a major problem, but it's not the only one. What have you seen? Because I'm just coming at it from a dog trainer, you know, no medical or sorry, no, you know, veterinary or chemistry or cognitive anal behavioral background in the sense. I'm just doing it. My joke is that we're just a bunch of knuckle dragging cops and military guys doing this and figuring it out on our own. But what have you seen or what do you see that is one of the major contributors that dogs will start to follow, like you said, to solve the problem easier? Is there a component that you see the dogs hone in on more than the other? Well, I guess it depends on the type of work that the dog is doing because, for instance, in a medical detection scenario set up where the dog had to be really close to the scent, probably saliva is one of the main component that the dog might pick up because the dogs are really close to smelling at this tiny little hole and it's easy to put the tongue. And as you know, they might also get that little tip of that urine or whatever it is the target Mm -hmm. to try to get more information. And it's so fast that actually you you won't notice. But in other scenarios, such as, I don't know, explosive or narcotic that you search a room, the dogs never get too close to source. So probably in that situation, the dog get, I think they might be more interested in, in get the human scent, how okay. you move. Yep. And you're going to see in the way that how the dogs move in a room. Like it's not certain, like, uh, like a, a really good search pattern that the dog have been I don't know, trained to do. Suddenly the dog like, oh yeah, no, he's trying to get this, the, the plume or whatever. Like, oh no, but it's the, the same way that I did before. So you need to really yeah. pay attention uh, to that. Yeah, they definitely track yeah. us through buildings if you're not careful because what happens as people set up a training scenario, they may, let's say it's a hallway with four or five rooms. Well, the rooms they walk into typically going to be the rooms they hide something in, and they they may not walk into the other rooms at all. So those become really easy to tell for the dog. Now, let's say the trainer is more progressive and and you know takes consideration about that, and they walk into the other rooms. But the other thing you have to consider is most times in the rooms that you have your target odor in, you've been in there longer than you have the non-target rooms. 
And then as dogs progress through the search problem, those rooms with no target odor keep diminishing in odor because people are in the target rooms more often. (laughs) So then those other dogs that are going, like you said, number spot number two, three, four, five, whatever it is, really can tell the difference because these other rooms are really hot with all kinds of odors and these other rooms don't really have anything. (laughs) So you have to really... You know, I, what I one of the lessons I learned when I was living in Europe was they focused a lot with letting dogs run their own training problems. So they may set up, let's say, four or five hides, but the dogs each got their own search. They didn't start in in an order and go, okay, you do, you know, every dog's running rooms one through whatever. It was like this dog is doing these two rooms and these two rooms only, and this has a find or it doesn't. This other dog is doing these other rooms and it has a find or it doesn't. You know, so they, they same space, but how they broke it down. So it meant from sometimes a shorter search depending on the space, but the benefit to the dogs were they weren't running over all these other smells, it was more of a actual pristine environment. Now, you know, we also, the, the other, you know, consideration we have to plan for is our training environments are always pretty nice and pristine when you look at it from the point of view of what they search for real. When they go out to the real world, like you said, bomb, drug, what have you, it's an environment filled with all kinds of smells, other people exactly. smells, food, you know, animals, whatever it is, it's got tons of other stuff. And that has a major effect on the dogs because the way I term it, and I've, you know, used the term from here from other people, but when all of a sudden we're in a real world environment, the dog is constantly cataloging all of these smells. And when they're cataloging and checking out all these different new amazing smells to them, they may exhibit some similar changes in behavior like they did when they find the target odor that we want them to find in our training areas. So then that handler who's now blind on a search with all of these new amazing distracting odors to the dog starts back to that problem we talked about before. If you're not using a marker or your body language is the marker in a sense, because how you move, you start walking behind the dog, you're getting yourself ready because you think your dog's found something or you're told to, you can't stand still, so keep walking. Well, you end up walking your same, I call it like crushing grapes. You just keep standing and moving your feet and doing all this sometimes silliness. The dogs picked up on that. They're like, oh, 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 so this new smell, is, is this relevant? And then there's that mistrust cycle that starts happening because we haven't prepared ourselves or the dog to deal with those environments with multitudes of odors. And then those that do sport detection, they train in their common areas in their town or wherever. Then they go to a new area for their competition. And this new area has all these smells plus 65 other dogs that have never smelled before, or let's say, say, you know, however many that are new in this area. So then now this handler comes into these searches and, and they're trying to interpret the handler being that interpreter of that dog have a hard time now trying to tell what the dog's doing. And while they do that, they inadvertently give cues that the dog goes, Oh, I think I know what that means. Or the handler doesn't want to leave an area because of a dog being interested in something. Is that a lot of the stuff that you guys also see? Yeah. So because to me, like like you said, yeah, we trained the dog in a very a clean environment in somehow, and then we put it in a really 
yeah, like you say, with a lot of uh, different structure and different centered people and so on. So I think the best way is try to just get different environments as, as much as you can. Uh, because one thing when you work with detection dog is the, the target of that you want to, the dog to find it. And so like we talked before, for that, obviously, you have your training protocol. So you, the dog is really clear. The, the trainer, the responder have to perform when they find it. Okay, that's perfect. Okay. But mm-hmm. even when the dog knows what to do, if, like I said, if the dog is more sensitive to environment or it's a mm-hmm. dog that is, I don't know, uh, even if a dog actually that might have really, the people call it like a really a prey drive or a dog that is really want a toy. So those dogs sometimes are really high sensitivity to reward, which means they're looking for a reward. Regardless that it's a toy, I'm yeah. looking for something that is rewarding me. And so in a new environment, even like I said, even if the dog knows what to do, if you have a sensitive dog, the dog might be more worried about what's going on surrounding me. Like, oh, there's a lot of people. Oh, what's the noise? Oh, I haven't seen that. And cannot focus on the search. Even the dog is amazing. Okay, you know. So, and on the other hand, if a dog is really high sensitive but to reward, it's like, okay, oh my God, that's so many things here. Oh, can I go and sniff there? Oh, oh, it's a toy in there. Oh, it, get distracted. So, I think you you don't need to just think about the detection itself. I mean, the task. If the dog can find it, the dog is amazing on that. Okay work also on environment a lot. So you know if you uh, have a dog that actually is seeking for stuff or it's a dog that gets worried. Like you said before, I think you said that when you change something, just a tiny little bit of the setup and the dog is like, oh my God, I don't know what to do now. You change the rules. Mm-hmm. And like, but dog is the same. Uh, no, it's not the same. So okay, yeah. So there's some dogs like, I don't know, no. I don't, know, I don't know what to do. And you're like, well, that was amazing. It's the best dog that I have. So you have to work both things separately. So we don't, one of the things that sometimes I see as well is, like I said, you work on your task, but also work in environment. So the dog habituate and ignore that. If you have a dog that is really sensitive, okay, so I start to introduce more, I don't know, busy environment, more noisy environment in a way that the dog get a little bit habituated and not sensitized to them. And then you get a dog that you want to just run away from the place that you need to train or you need to be deployed. And a dog that is seeking for reward and sometimes the dog, like I said, might get frustrated really easy because I want that and I cannot have it. So I bite my leash, I bite the people around me, uh, I just destroy something. So you know the dog where you have in that in those environments. So then, okay, I know what you need to manage. I know how I need to add to the training environment. So, like I said, it's not just the detection task. It's also how the dog behave to be able to focus on the task. Yeah, for sure. So another topic that comes up that I, I'm sure you've heard of and you've dealt with and with your background with understanding canine olfaction and cognition and training, the method of basically grabbing your various training aids, you're starting a brand new dog and let's say it's bomb or it's drug. 
you grab the one training aid that happens to have, it's this one drug, and then you grab your other drug, and you grab your other one, you throw it all in a box. They're potentially different weights, or maybe close to the same weight, or what have you. You throw them all into one box, and your theory is, well, the dog will separate them out. I can just use this one box. The dog will smell those odors and then go find them. You know, the dog understands that despite the mixture, they'll, they know what these three odors are. What's your thought or opinion on what we call the cocktail method versus taking the dog and training it to each odor separately and then adding mixtures or adding, you know, non-target materials mixed in so that way the dog has that baseline understanding. So like I said, one odor versus the cocktail. What do you, what's your oh, thoughts wow. on that based on your experience? That's a very good question. <laughs> yeah, because uh, we don't have a lot of evidence to say, no, this is the best way. Also depending on what you're training the dog on, like to search. Because to me, for instance, I don't know, if you want to train a narcotic dog in a cocktail, probably the more available or more volatile smell is going to probably overlap another one. So the dog actually gets, mm-hmm. oh, okay. yeah, I get a little bit of the other ones, but the main picture is this one. So mm-hmm. I guess depending on which type of smell you train your dog is the best way to do it. That makes sense because, and also, it's the clarity part. You're teaching clarity. You know, this is what I want you to find. I also want you to find this one later on. I also want you to find this one versus going, hey, there's all three here or four here. And like you said, they all off gas at different levels. So depending on what that dog is taking in to, you know, even though, yes, it may smell the other ones a little bit, but smells this one really well. And you're reinforcing what the dog is taking in that strongest one of the three or whatever. Well, because some uh, trainers and good trainers, they say that they have been uh, or get more uh, success actually doing the cocktail mm-hmm. and then separate. But it's like, yeah, but how you prepare that cocktail? How would you know that it's exactly <laughs> the same? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it, how, does it, how does that training aid degrade? Exactly. And how they react together. Mm-hmm. When they're, Absolutely. So it's like, well... I mean, if, yeah, if I think like a, like a science way, it's like, oh, that doesn't make sense. I wouldn't do that. But yeah. probably the dog is able to do that. Or maybe some dogs, yes, some dogs, no. But to me, yeah, when you mix everything together, you don't know the reaction between the compounds. You might need to measure like, like in a lab the, the same amount if you want to repeat the session again, because otherwise it's not the same cocktail. Yeah. So, and how that that variability might help the dog later on to separate the scent, or actually no, might confuse the dog, and dog just have a big scent picture of them, one of this the the scent, and not all of them. So yeah, that's a tricky question to be honest. Yeah. And, and what and what I like to do sometimes is to, you know, I've done both, and I can say through my experience, you know, like I said, there's there's many people who have done the cocktail, and they always say look how many dogs we've trained, it works. But I also look at how much work extra did you have to put in to get the result you wanted versus if you had just done the one at a time. Because it's like dominoes. Once the dog knows the first odor, the next one start, they learn very quickly. 
Because once you reinforce and the system looks about the same, they'll pick it up fast. The other aspect is I bring up in the argument of the cocktail, I'm like, okay, so you use your cocktail and then you go to this, when you start separating them, you go to this room and you have three or four pieces of furniture in there and you put the odor right at the edge of that drawer or whatever. Well, now it's the only salient strong thing in that room. The dog's bound to be inquisitive of it. When they're inquisitive of it, you help them or you tell them or the dog may just sit because of repetition. It doesn't mean that the dog really knew it. So what I throw at them is I say, okay, so if you really believe your cocktail method works and you have in your box your heroin, your cocaine, and your methamphetamine, so when you say you're done with your box, I'm going to show up and I'm going to bring my cocaine with me. We're not going to use yours. It's been in the box. We're going to use cocaine that's, you know, it's cocaine, just not what that dog's run. And we're going to do a odor lineup. We're going to put out three or four items in a, in a row. Some are blank. Some may have something else there. If your method really does work, the dog should only show interest and, of course, maybe even alert. But at a minimum, I'll give them interest. Interest longer at the cocaine spot than it does the other spots. So, and, of course, that's where the wheels start falling off. And yeah, okay. because, just like we just said, depending on the dog, many of them don't. So I use the – so the the sport world – uses the essential oils and a lot of them store their oils together. So what I've been recently showing them is, and, and, and of course these are super volatile oils. So the, just the odor is super strong, super sticky. You know, you have to be careful where you put something cause it may last there for weeks <laughs> later. So what I've done recently is said, okay, so you believe this, you know, putting all your oils together works. Okay. I'm not saying it doesn't, but let's just try something else. I'll put out another essential oil that is not what they're looking for. It says, let's say it's ginger. They use birch, uh, anise, and clove. I'll put out ginger essential oil. And boy, do I haven't had hardly any yet that don't alert to it or don't show strong change to it. And I, I remind them that, okay, so all of, whether it be birch, anise, or clove, they're all basically, there's a lot of the substance that's the same. The only unique thing is what made it birch, what made it anise, what made it clove. But everything else is the same because it's designed to be put in that little heating thing or, you know, be used for aromatherapy and things like that. So what did your dog really learn? Well, it learned a lot about the oils themselves, these other components, not necessarily the birch, anise, or clove difference. So when I, it's when I throw out the ginger or some of the other ones, the dogs will show a lot of interest. So when I do uh, distracting odors for them, I put that out, and it's a tough one because I ask them, "Well, how often do you do you tra- if you re- if your dog really knows birch, anise, and clove, how often do you put out one of the other ones, one of the other oils that's not one of those three, and see what your dog does?" And that doesn't exactly. happen very often. So it's yeah, and 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 also like you said, to me, if the dog knows the game really clearly, okay. I love, I don't know, this scent, and I perform my trainer the response, I got a reward. If that is really clear, it should be easier then to introduce a new scent, and a new yeah. one, and a new one, and a new one. But mm-hmm. Because it does knows what to do. The only thing that it doesn't have to do is like put in their memory, okay, this smell, this two, this two, and this two. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's really interesting. It brings it to another aspect when it comes to olfaction and odors, 
is thresholds. Now, I know you've been there with Nathan, so you've got to see the, that research obviously just came out recently with him, Paul Bunker, and Mallory about the thresholds. Talk a little bit about what you know in your experience and how important and why we need to really be aware of our thresholds. Because whether it be the professional who's given their odor kit and their odor kit is broken into 2 grams, 10 grams, 28 grams, maybe 46 grams. And then you have your bomb kit, which is, let's say, typically one pound, sometimes a little bit over two pounds. And they train those frequently. That's their kit. That's what they have. They, they're not allowed to touch them. They're not allowed to change them. This is the weights that they're given, and this is what they have. And then in the sport world, theirs is typically one drop or absorption of the oil in a container that's got maybe one drop in it. So you got one crowd or one group who allows the material to be absorbed, and then another group puts an actual drop on each item that goes out. So I talk about why or what you see and what dogs take in when it comes to thresholds. Yeah, so I can talk about what I did because, yeah, it's really easier sometimes when you do it like in a lab, like you can actually measure how much or if compounds, like I mean the the target itself and the solvent, if you're going to use. And it's really easy to have those control so you can see the dog uh, performance more clearly. So when I did that olfactory detection threshold, like I said, I used 10 dogs, different dogs, Border Collie, Labradors, and Springer Spaniel, and working mm -hmm. um, Cocker Spaniel. Okay, so different age. And it was the same setup and so on. So what we had from that uh, research actually was that the most you train the dog, even if you reduce the threshold, the better the dog gets. Oh, okay? okay. So we have to stop and put a criterion <laughs> because the dog is like, okay, I'm going to be two years doing the same experiment because the dog is like going down and down and down in concentration or more, more, more diluted. So it's yeah. like, oh my God. But at some point, some of the dogs, they, they couldn't like detect more lower concentration. And, and also some dogs start to struggle. So the performance start to uh, get worse. And, and suddenly, actually, the dog starts to get better. So you can see, like, okay, this dog is not detecting this anymore. And suddenly, what? What is happening here? The dog is getting really good. So, and, and those dogs that sometimes you see, oh, this dog has got an amazing threshold or whatever. And sometimes the dog picks up something a little bit different that helps to find the target. That we, we, we just spoke about that. Something that the dog realized, okay, I don't know. There is a little bit of more of this compound. So if this is the target compared to the, a control, which is next. Yeah. And so the dogs have a point that they're going to, if they struggle to find it, they're going to start to pick up whatever it is that helps them to find them or to get the reward. Of course. And yeah, so pressure can get, like I said, better and better if you train your dog. What we saw in that uh, research also was if we go down in concentration in, um, in a way that you, I don't know, for instance, today 2%, 100, tomorrow mm. 80, and then 50. So 
started like really going down. When you bring the dog back to 100, some of the dogs struggle. So it's like, what? But you perform really good at this one. Why you don't find this one? So when you work with threshold, and sometimes the smell might taint. So mm-hmm. for the dog, yeah, concentration of any, any smell might have a, a different meaning. So, okay, I don't know, to say something, like you say, one milligram have uh, like a sort of rose smell, but actually 10 milligrams have a, I don't know, fish smell, to say something. Yeah. So the dog is like, oh, wait a minute, this is not the same. Yeah. Okay? So when you work with thresholds, you have to find out actually which threshold the dog can find, which threshold the dog can learn, okay? Because if I present to the dog for the first time, 100, oh, the dog fine easily. Uh, and then, I don't know, 0.5, mm-hmm. oh, the dog cannot find it. All right. But if I work towards that threshold, the dog will, the dog will learn and we'll find it later on. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It's the same up and down. I mean, with, yeah, with lower concentration or higher concentration, if you want to call it like that, or dilution, depending yeah. on what you're, you're training the dog. So you have to work threshold up and down. And if the dog cannot find 1,000 grams or, I don't know, or 0.5 milligrams, well, you have to work your train in a way that you reach that threshold so the dog can learn to get yes. to that. Yeah. Okay? Because if you only use one gram, 10 grams, and 100 grams, regardless how you present it, uh, I mean, one day, one gram, another day, 100, 100, sorry, grams, or whatever, yeah. the dog might learn that specific smell. What happened in the middle? Yeah. What happened with a five gram? Can you find mm-hmm. the dog? Is it the same smell? Is a new one? Because the dog says, okay, this is smell A, B, C. They're almost the same, but... It's still a different. Okay, I learned A, B, C. But yeah, but what happened in the middle? So yeah, you have to try to give the dog a wide variation of, of concentrations up and down so the dog can have that variability and learn how to get to higher concentration and lower concentration. The dog Absolutely. can learn to do that. Yeah, it, it's a struggle because, you know, like I said, a lot of times these agencies only give their handlers this predefined odor kit and then they, you know, that's all they get to train on. And you have to end up going out there being creative as a handler to either join up with somebody else, maybe uh, find ways that you can find training aids that were or get something that has higher or bigger surface area, more odor available. Exactly. So the dog gets, yeah, gets used to that stronger scent. And then you have the other way around, which is very small amounts. You know, I know like Tobias and the guys over at the Scandinavian Work Dog Association or Work Dog Institute do a lot of low-level stuff. And it's funny because I'm doing a lot of electronics detection dogs now, and I'm applying the things I've I got educated and trained on from uh, Nunspeed, the project that that you already kind of mentioned earlier, Dr. Ade Schoen, and the guy I work with, Stefan Peterson. Um, they had to 
So like a day came, I, when I first met a day, a funny backstory is I met her back in 1999 when I lived in Europe and I went there to Nunspeet and got to watch the scent ID. And then I, I have still to this day, these little small videotapes of when I sat down and talked to her way back before podcasts or, or anything. I just recorded it just so I could remember everything. So the importance that I learned more recently when we came back around full circle, all being around each other in a sense, my, now it's been my contact's been uh, directly with uh, Stefan, is the dealing with electronics was the odor thresholds are all pretty low in, in typical volatility. And we needed dogs who search much more detail, not the run around the room, run around the room, okay, I'll find it. And I've had to, this is you know kind of a new project for me, so I've had to really hone in on teaching a dog to do this, and then starting off with what they learned, which was there was a belief there's a certain chemical here you know, that we use frequently in the United States to teach dogs this way of doing it, finding electronic dogs. Well, when Dr. Schoen and Stefan went to them and said, "What research or data do you guys have as to why you picked that chemical?" Well, there wasn't any. It was just, well, we were told this is what chemicals present, so we trained on it. So they took it back to Nunspeed, did a lot of testing, and it turns out that chemical really isn't as relevant as two other ones. Two other ones are much more relevant, and what they got to see was that in some cases these dogs, if you trained on this one element first and then you go to this other chemical, the spontaneous generalization to go from the chemicals to a micro SD card or SD card was much stronger. And then the dogs generalizing to other non-targets was much lower. So you weren't getting oh, wow. false positives. You were getting... So I'm applying that now with a project that I'm doing for uh, Los Angeles. And we are training some dogs right now. But it's a total different way because I have to work on low threshold right from the start, which is, isn't necessarily what I'm typically used to. I'm used to starting off with more salient, stronger odor. And it's, it's challenging. You know, you, I had to learn a lot about dealing with thresholds, how to make this work for the dog, be very patient in that process, you know, as the dog learns, because the other aspect went back to that when the threshold went down in odor, the dog finding it and then maintaining impulse control for holding the indication seemed to change. Like, the dog, because of the lower amount of odor, the dog was more impulsive to get yeah. paid versus yeah. when the odor is really strong, they stay there longer. And I don't know if there's any, if you guys have seen that just in research, nothing was actually tested, but I just, I see it from the practitioner side. I'm like, wow, when the odor level is lower, it takes a little bit more to get that impulse to last longer versus if the odor is very strong. It, and again, this is going to be dependent on the dog because obviously dogs, sometimes when it's super strong, they go crazy too. So I'm just seeing it change going from what I typically do to a new project and dealing with a much lower odor threshold profile, having a dog kind of stay focused and not like want to get paid quickly. That's very interesting where you mentioned two things. Coming back to what you were talking initially, yes, you should try to be creative, like you said, in a way that you can change the threshold when you don't have any option. So like you said, work with time. I mean, put the, the, the scent and run the dog straight away. You should have really, really a small amount of 
other uh, available for that dog. So also that helps her to work a little bit of treasure, like you said, the the surface area. So you might need to get creative to try to change and keep in a way that you can make notes what you had to do. So actually, or what you did, sorry. So you can repeat it later on. And because otherwise you don't know, you're just playing and yeah, you can have more viability that actually try to train the dog with a specific uh, level of threshold. So, yes, yeah, yeah. so because in, in a lab, when you can prepare, yeah, it's, it's easier than in a real situation. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but then coming back to what you said, um, that's very interesting because, yeah, I would, I would guess that when the, the smell is really strong, the dog is really confident and might have to find it. And, but may, maybe when the threshold is really low, the dog is not sure anymore because it's more similar to, I don't know, the environment or the controls that you're mm-hmm. using or the destructor that you're using. So, and that is very interesting that actually the dog want to get paid really quickly. Because, I, I, yeah, I, it's a bit, uh, sorry, it's, I, I think I found it really fascinating because I will guess that the dog is, spend more time sniffing to make sure that that is the yes. smell. But actually what you're describing is like, no, the dog can find it like more quickly. Like, okay, I'm done. Please pay me. When I did, yeah. and you, but later on I can give you the, the reference. As part of my PhD, uh, we're looking at the sniffing behavior. And we found that this is an amylacetate. So we found that when the dog detect that the, the target is there and not there, takes around 0.2 milliseconds, okay? So it's there, okay. not there. But then, well, this is a, a true negative sample, a, a control. So it's not there, poof, move, move, move. But when he or the, the dog gets to a target, it takes the double of the time, around 0.4 mm-hmm. milliseconds. Mm-hmm. So... The dog, like I said, is it, it's really fast for them to say is there or not there. But then, yeah. probably, I'm not sure it might be the discrimination or the decision making that take longer. Okay, so I recognize yeah. it's there, but then it's like, oh, okay, it's there. So now I need to perform a train a little response, and that takes longer, like the processing in the brain. <laughs> yes. So, so now when you say about the dog that. When you find a, like a really low threshold, want to get paid really quickly. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? It might be because the dog is not confident. Uh, like, I mean, I find yeah. it. Please, it's there. I'm sure that it's this one. Pay me now. Um, that's, you know? that's almost what I see because it sometimes I'm still questioning, is he guessing? You know, right. Because yeah. as we've added the, the other variables, you know, he because he'll check, like you said, the checking of, oh, it's there, it's not there. Usually when it's not there, it's pretty fast. Yeah. You know, you'll see like, okay, no, nothing there, nothing there. But sometimes because of the repetition of nothing there, nothing there, nothing there, then all of a sudden they're, oh, the target's there. It's like, oh, wait, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and it wants to – otherwise, if it if the, the signal doesn't come, I've seen in this particular dog, he gets more active. So he'll nudge, push put his paw on it, whatever. And in this case, it's not the end of the world because it's not a bomb dog. And yeah. I'm not worried about the drugs. <laughs> it's, it's electronic. So if he gets a little impulsive as I'm trying to build his duration, you know, I'm okay with it. But the downside to that was after, just like you said a little while ago, he freezes up, 
I'm trying to get, dur- get duration out of it. Then a nose push happens, and then he freezes up, and then I mark. You know, I click. Well, I have to make sure the trainers, you know, because I'm not the only one. Mostly, it's actually not even me doing it. It's the trainers I have doing it. Uh, we talk about it. And we want to make sure that we're not creating that chain of freeze, nose push, freeze. Exactly. or <laughs> Yeah. So we were just talking yesterday about, okay, if this happens, if he nose pushes or pause or, or whatever, reset, you know, and the reset worked better than anything else because he was like, oh man. And then he held better after the reset versus waiting out what we wanted. Because the other thing we, we've learned too is... When we did too much waiting out, even when it's non-target and they think they're right, they wait a long time. You know, they learned this game. (laughs) So yeah, it's, 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 it's a fun, you know, it's a good challenge, which brings me kind of like my last question for you that you've done a lot of diverse stuff. So from medical detection, let's say compared to typical bomb drug detection, what what is the differences or what are the fun things that you've seen between those two different worlds? Well, I think I mentioned at the beginning, um, when you work with uh, explosive detection dogs or narcotics or something that you can control a little bit the scent, it's more like a detection game itself. And okay, when you work for a medical detection field, you don't know what the dog is actually alerting. We don't know, otherwise it will be really easy to develop a, I don't know, a machine that detects cancer, detect COVID sure. or whatever. So because we don't know, we have to actually really need to rely on the dog. And you need a dog that is, is good and discriminated more than actually detecting. I don't know, you know, because when you work with medical samples, you have a thousand, a thousand volatile compounds, like an urine mm-hmm. or, I don't know, a blood sample. And most of the samples is the same. So it, I think the medical field is more, more difficult because, like I said, we don't know why we are playing the dog to find. Also, you have to have lots, lots of samples from people so the dog actually don't learn the people. Okay. Yeah. Then I can give you also the reference. We found when we're doing this project with cancer detection dogs, they one day, okay, now we need to get to the next level. So the first level, for instance, is the dog have to learn uh, to discriminate a person who has cancer from healthy people. Okay. So really easy. Yeah. Uh, well, more, more or less. Then you yeah. have to add people with different disease. It's not cancer, but also might have blood, in, for instance, in urine, might have infection, might have something else that is quite similar to what you have, but it's not exactly the same. Okay? Mm-hmm. So when we move forward and those steps, and some of the best dogs start to struggle. They're like, what's going on? The dog was performing well. So, okay, we have to actually, and, and, and that I think is, is good, like my vet part, because we need to rule out what's going on with the dog, doing different tests and rule out different symptoms. So we did this and start to have a look, okay, from where the samples are coming, are coming from the same hospital, are coming from different places, because it might be the background odor in the sample. Okay, no, 
now that. All right. So wow. with the, when the samples have been stored in a freezer, minus 80 in a normal one, because might be that. No, was not that. Okay, so then <laughs> where we be like store the pot, like the, when, before you take the sample? No, the same thing. Okay. And then we realized that actually the, what was the difference and what the dog was struggling is when the person donated the, the urine and the nurse, some of them take a little sample and test with the dipstick to, mm-hmm. okay, just the level of protein and so on. And some of the nurse actually put the dipstick inside of the urine. So actually, mm. that just really thing that put the dipstick inside make the dog a very different picture of what's going on. So that confused the dog. Wow. So it was wow. like, oh my God, I can't believe that. Maybe, I don't know, there is a chemical reaction. So the change in smell of urine or something. So the medical detection field is, I think it's difficult because you need dogs that discriminate really, really good, more than detect. Yes. And, and another field is like, the, like the, say that, the, where you say the Dr. Shun, so the, it's the yes. match to sample, which is completely different. So in that field, actually, what the dog have to is hold in the memory, the smell yep. that you just presented, like for a few seconds, and find the same one in a lineup of four, five, seven, twelve, I don't know, depending on the... Yeah. So, and that is momentaneous. Then forget about that. <laughs> okay? Then it's going to come another person and you have to find that one. So, there are different games within the, the same olfaction in dogs. Like, I mean, like I said, you could just detect. If you just tell me it's there or not there, you have to discriminate yeah. properly. Is really this one where you just need to tell me that it's present or you need to find this one? But exactly this one. No, not this human. It's this human being. So yeah. to finalize, to coming back to, because I remember that uh, I mentioned that when I learned to forensic odorology, so to do this scent, uh, human scent, uh, marching, mm-hmm. and, and then I was working for a medical detection dog, and there was a person that wanted to train a dog to find cats, domestic cats, but like, why well, was someone? Huh. Yes. So uh, in the UK, it seems that you have cats that are really uh, high value, you know, pedigree and so on or whatever. And yeah. so this person <laughs> wants to train a dog to find cats. We're like, I don't know even if a cat has, they have different smells. Smell. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, yeah. let's try. And we did that. We didn't match the sample because that dog needs to learn and find that cat, not any cat, that is specific cat. So yeah. that was really, really interesting. The dog is still working. I think I have found more than 100 cats. Even has a book. So it's Molly. Wow. Yes. So it's amazing. It's a pet detective in the UK. Okay. So yeah. So you can actually use this technique to apply in a different field. Not just the human forensic stuff. Well, you've got a dog that can find another cat. Maybe you need to find a specific item. So you train the dog to find the item that you are presented. So, yeah, well, I love this. And like I said, yeah. yeah, you have a completely different field that you can apply different techniques depending on what you want the dog to do. So, 
Oh, yeah. No, it, it was as I've looked at, let's say, medical versus the typical bomb drug world. The one side of the equation is the search area for the medical dog is a simple search area. It's typically that scent carousel. Yes. But the technical aspect of being so precise and dealing with so many variables of distracting and proofing odors and being that particular versus the professional or the typical, let's say, drug dog, bomb dog kind of thing, the search environment is incredibly difficult with all kinds of things. But the the odor part of it is easier in a sense. You know, it's a little more cut and dry and not as technical as that medical dog with all those things. It's like one side requires a ton of training on proofing and distracting. The other side does too, but its environment is super difficult. The other one, the search environment is pretty straightforward and the same, which is by design. So two different spectrums with basically the same job. Go find this. Exactly. You know, whatever that, that this is. So that's what I find it so fascinating. And that's why I've really been enjoying and I'll have podcasts coming up on conservation dogs because oh, yes. the conservation yeah. aspect, like you just said a minute ago, it's certain species. And then there's relatives to these species. So if it's a certain type of fish, but then there's cousins of this fish or just slight variations, but the other variations aren't the problem or what have you, all the the amount of that proofing training is is so intense. The teaching the odor part's the easy part in comparison. It's the dealing with don't alert to all these other things that are closely related potentially or may have similar makeups. Don't worry about those, just exactly. this kind of one. So yeah, that's and that, so I admire and the the conservation handlers that are and that field's you know literally growing leaps and bounds, becoming far more popular. But the it's almost growing faster than the research side of it can keep up with, yeah. <laughs> because almost so many of my talk to have been like, "Hey, can you ask Nathan about maybe is there a research we can do to find out why the can we get the dogs to alert uh, to alert to this type of fish egg, not this type of fish yeah. egg?" So you have to even yeah, though train the, the dog to ignore that one, it's just that specifically, yeah, yeah. Or the ones that live in this kind of water region versus this other body of water. So really, really cool stuff on the horizon. And, and every, as everybody knows, listen to me, I always talk about like we're, we are literally in a renaissance period for detection dogs. You know, we've learned more in the past 10 years than we did the prior 100 years when it comes to dog olfaction yeah. and detection and cognition and these things. Yes, exactly. So, I, I really thank you for your time and thank you first and foremost for all the work that you're doing and the research that you're providing because it's it's there's so much my my statement I make a lot of times is there's so much we know there's so much we don't well, know yes. there's there's a lot that we believe and there's still so much yet to learn yes so exactly. there's never a perfect or exactly a cut and dry answer certain things yeah but in general speaking we still have so much to to learn about these dogs and what are they really picking up yeah when also we can have some evidence today about something and tomorrow we realize that we were wrong because yeah, there's another yep. factor influence on it so it's research moving every day change you know you have to just keep yeah. reading and see which one is the new evidence about I don't know, detection dog or any behavior or cognition, yes. Yeah, no, and 
I, I know obviously this will create some great questions from, from the audience and stuff. I think the easiest way for people to find you is typically like Facebook and LinkedIn, correct? Is that yeah. yes, it is. easy spaces to find you? And w- if you want, you can give me your email address and I, I can put it in the show notes so that if anybody wants to email you directly questions, they can do that as well if you're good with that. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm happy with that. I can give you, yeah, yeah my. Yeah, yeah, we'll do it. Yeah, you can send it to me when we get off here. But um, thank you again so much. Really appreciate all the effort that you're doing. It's we you know we'll we'll get good payoffs, and I I look forward to doing another one of these with you here in the future, especially as you finish up with some of these projects. Yes, well, um, yeah. As long as I'm a like a how you say that. Um, as long as I can disclose information, um, yes, yeah. I'm happy to share. Probably we're going to have some publication, so you know when you submit a paper, now it's public, so we can talk. Yep. Yes. So, but where maybe later on, you can tell me some specific thing that you want to talk about this project. So actually, I can ask for authorization to disclose some information. Sure. So that would be good. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Thank you so much yeah. for inviting me because. I love to talk about dogs and all the stuff and, and also learn about, for instance, your experience, your opinion, because, yeah, for us, sometimes mm-hmm. as researchers, when you listen to someone and you say, oh, I never thought about that. And then your brain, you know, sure. it's kind of like, okay, to get the question and I pause it. It's like, <laughs> oh, my God, we should do it. Yeah, like, blow my mind, you know, like, oh, yeah, we have so much to do. So. Yeah, yeah. We, we have to collaborate with each other because that's how we all get better. You know, we can't have the line in the sand of, well, those are researchers. All they do is they work in a lab. They don't understand what we do out in the field. Yep. And then the ones in the laboratory are like, well, I don't understand because I've never seen it. You know, so I, I've enjoyed kind of being a bridge between the two sides. I, I only did it because I was a geek and a nerd about a lot of the dog stuff. So it, it led me into that world. And I like being able to have podcasts like this or the stuff I share on social media to kind of help have the, the two sides talk to each other more and share yes. experiences yes, exactly. and data and things like that. So it's, we it's really a lot of fun. We always learn from each other. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. That's good. So, well, well, thank you. Of course. And everybody else, thank you for listening to this episode of Canine's Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. 